you can go ahead. You can go ahead and uh, take a seat. And if you are becoming a member this morning, go ahead and come up here to the front. You can join us. Yeah, it's exciting, right? I'm excited, at least. Uh, yeah, I am. I am excited this morning, uh, guys. This is part of what is exciting about this to me is uh, this is a reminder that God is bringing. Uh, new life to our congregation, that this is a place that there are people who are uh, meeting with Jesus for the first time, who are interacting with Jesus in new ways, who are coming to join a part of what God is doing in, of, and for East Nashville. And uh, just a reminder that, oh, guys, you know I always get teary when this kind of stuff happens. It's so fun to see your faces up here. Uh, Personally, also really encouraging to me that if you remember when we started meeting back in person uh, not that long ago, uh, the room didn't feel like this. Uh, and it's, it, it didn't feel full like this. And again, just looking at, looking at you guys is such a, uh, a reminder that God is still working in this community. And knowing you guys and your stories has been uh, really encouraging to me on a personal level. So I'm so thankful. And what our friends are doing this morning is they are not becoming members because they believe that they are extra holy. Okay, that's not what membership is about. Uh, they're becoming members because they believe that it's a biblical thing to do. That when you become a Christian, when you're engrafted into the body of Christ, that you join this family that stretches across space and time. Think about that, right? That as a people, we're a part of the same people that have been God's people since all the way in the Old Testament, right? We're one with the people that were part of the early church, the, the martyrs in the Colosseum in Rome, we're one people. And that people always finds an expression in a local body that God calls us to belong somewhere. And that's what our friends are doing this morning. They're saying this is the place that they believe God has called them to belong. So if you are a member here this morning and you're out here, would you stand up for me real fast? Okay. And I'm doing this just for the record, not to shame anybody, but just so our friends up here can see uh, there is a community that they're joining. They're not doing this alone. So you guys can go ahead and sit back down now. Uh, I wanted you guys to see that before you take the vows. These are people who are promising, hey, we are here uh, to do this with you, that we're for you, and that we are all in on your journey with Jesus as you guys uh, are in in with us. So Tim is one of our elders here. And Tim is going to lead you guys in in some vows. So after each question, if you will respond with, uh, I do, okay, is the the answer. Uh, And these are not new vows. These guys aren't surprised by them. We we, uh, spent some time, I guess we call them interviews, but it's really just having a conversation about um, these guys and their journey with Jesus. And we've gone over these vows together. So they're aware of what they're about to be asked, just, just for the record. You guys will notice that Betsy came out a little bit late because she was <laughs> serving in Kidtown and back, so already taking on <laughs> what membership looks like. Love to see that. Yes. All right. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability?
And do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? And you guys can ask these guys about all these vows now because they've walked through them and asked all the questions that they have. So if you have questions about what they just vowed, feel free to ask any of them or any of us. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I'm so, uh, so thankful for these friends, Lord, for, uh, for who they are, for your story uh, in their lives. Jesus, it's been such a privilege to hear about the ways that you've pursued them and come after them. Uh, and we're so thankful for that. We praise you for that. Lord, we, uh, we need them as a part of this community, and so we're thankful that you have brought these people here uh, to be with us, to be a part of following you uh, here in this congregation. Lord, ask that you would uh, that you'd bless them. Lord, as they serve and seek to follow you here, uh, Lord, that they would experience you in, in new and profound ways. Lord, that as they serve, that this community would benefit and that they would benefit from that as well. Lord, and that all of that would speak uh, to the love that you have for them and for us and for our city. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You can go ahead and grab your seats. And if you, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and y'all can turn, talk to each other, say hi to somebody around you while I get set up for the sermon up here. Okay, guys, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and get started. And uh, I'm going to start by, by, I just feel compelled to mention this. Uh, last night, or when I woke up this morning, I was in the middle of a dream about Toy Story. So I don't know if you remember that movie, but uh, it, it connects because I have been watching Toy Story nonstop in my house for the last several months. I don't know if you have children, but if you don't, I will just tell you that when kids get into something, they really get into it. And right now at our house, it is Toy Story. It is the only movie that we watch ever, specifically Toy Story 3, which my daughter calls the daycare one. So, uh, and <laughs> this is super into it. And what I have been amazed in at this movie, well, I'll just say this. The first time I watched it r recently, I was so confused about the ending. I did not understand what was going on. If you remember, spoiler alert, it's been out for a decade, so if you don't know this, this is on you, okay? Um, Woody has been trying the whole time to go to college with his owner, Andy. And then at the last minute, he gets given to this little girl, Bonnie, with the rest of the toys. 
okay. And the first time I watched it, I was like, what is, what, what is going on here? Like, why has Woody's desire changed so dramatically at the end of this movie? But I was also watching it again for the first time, so just, you know, kind of taking it in stride. Then the second time I watched it, I uh, was even more confused. Like, I did not understand why the movie ended that way. Then the third time I watched it, I was l legitimately angry at my inability to understand the ending of this movie. And my wife and I, in our, like, off hours, like, you know, we're not with our children, we're just two adult humans being so frustrated with the ending of this movie. I'm like, the writers here, Pixar, is really going down the tube. You know, like, it's been a while. We're on, like, the third installment of this franchise. Maybe they just lost their creativity. The writing is not good. So I'm, like, getting angry at this movie. And then I was listening to Toy Story 3, because you can do that now on Spotify. Uh, in the car, I'm following along with it, and it finally clicked for me. I'm like, wait, that's why Woody wants to go with his friends at the end of the movie. And suddenly, all of these pieces of the movie started to make sense to me in an entirely new way. So when I watched it the fourth time, <laughs> I saw these clues that were explaining the ending of the movie the entire time, and I had just been missing them. Okay, so why is that relevant for this morning? Uh, are you ever angry when you read a story in the Bible? Okay, I'll ask that again. We can, you can nod along if... <laughs> Are you ever angry when you read something in the Bible? The sermon series that we're in right now is about being curious. And what I want to encourage you with is that you being angry about things that you read in Scripture can actually be a launching point for you being curious. Like when I was watching Toy Story. <laughs> that... Uh, anger can be something that rather than pushing us away actually draws us in to ask what is going on here and the story that we're reading this morning I don't know if any of you were in small group this week and read this story um, my gut is that it may have made you angry when you read it great I hope that also made you curious and we're going to do uh, this morning, what we do have been doing every morning in this sermon series, every Sunday in the sermon series, is I'm going to ask you after we read the text, what are you curious about? And if you were in small group or, or, or not, and as you read it, if, if there's something in here that makes you angry, ask about it. And what, what we're hoping that, that we learn as a community through this process, through this sermon series, through being curious, is that the scriptures are always open for us. There's always the invitation that we would come with our curiosity that that would be something that we're growing, a discipline that we're growing in together. So I'm going to ask Ashley to come up. Ashley Spilker is reading our scripture for us this morning. It'll be up on the screen, uh, but if you have your Bibles, you can also open to Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. This is where we're going to be this morning. Tim turned it off. <laughs> All right. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we are thankful uh, that you desire to speak to us, that you desire to reveal truth for us, Lord, and that uh, your word is deep enough that we don't always understand it at first pass. Lord, that that tells us that there is more here for us to discover and to learn about, to be changed by uh, all of the time. And we ask that you would do that this morning, that you'd reveal yourself to us and that you would change us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what questions do you have about this passage? Why is it talking about demons? Yes, what else? What is Jesus talking about? Yeah, why does it seem like Jesus is pushing this woman away or fencing her off from God's people when she's coming to him? How did she find Jesus? Why didn't he want people to know where he was? One or two more? Yeah, did Jesus offend this woman with his response? Yeah, was he testing her faith? Okay, so many questions that we bring to this passage. And what, what we're gonna focus in on this morning is the desperation of this woman and Jesus' generosity in meeting her. So the, des- the desperate situation of this woman and the, the generosity of Jesus as he meets her. Okay, so we have, th- we have this woman, uh, this Syrophoenician woman. Uh, well, let's actually, let's, let's start with Jesus, shall we? Okay. So it says, he rose from there and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he, went in, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. So what's been happening in Jesus' ministry is that these great crowds have been following him. He's been teaching, he's been healing, and Jesus is exhausted. Which, just as a side note, is always very encouraging to me to realize that if our Lord can get exhausted as a human, then certainly we have permission to be exhausted as well. And Jesus, he's exhausted, he's tired, and so he withdraws from Judea, from this region where all of the Jews are living, to be in this place that is away from them as a way of, uh, of recovery. So that's what Jesus is doing here. Is he's, he's kind of withdrawing into a region where God's people, uh, there aren't as many of them, as a way of kind of taking a step back from the ministry he's been called to so that he can rest. And in the middle of his resting, this woman comes and finds him. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So there's a lot about this that we don't know. Like what did it look like for this little girl to be oppressed? I don't think it was, we're not talking horror movie stuff, but we know that it was not good. It was not good for this little girl and her mom is so upset by it. 
And somehow she's heard of this wandering Jew who performs miracles. And she knows that that is the only hope for her daughter. You've got to imagine this woman has probably tried everything to heal her daughter, to protect her daughter, to see her daughter made whole, and none of it is working. But she hears there's this man, and he's, he's come into, into her radius who, who has been casting demons out of people, and she said, I, like, I need to get in front of him. And it says that she, uh, she comes into the house where he was. She was not invited. She just comes in. So she was begging Jesus. The verb tense there is the present progressive, which means she kept on begging. It was a continual begging that she was doing. One of the parallel accounts of this same incident, so this story kind of retold from a different perspective in one of the other Gospels, tells us that this woman was actually following Jesus, asking for this. Then he went into the house, and she followed him into the house, and she kept on begging. This woman was desperate to have her daughter healed. What is your reaction to her neediness? Do you recoil from that at all? Oh, wow. Aren't you afraid of coming across a little bit needy? You know, like it was too needy? No, we would never say that to a, to a mother who is desperate to see her daughter healed, right? This woman who wants to see her daughter made well. She's desperate for it. It's the kind of desperation that manifests itself when uh, I think about uh, when, a, when a child is sick, even in our world, right? The desperation of a family to see that child healed, that uh, families will do anything for that. And we have all kinds of medical protocols that open up treatments to children who, who, who are otherwise hopeless in their disease. that there are uh, compassionate use boards of pharmaceutical companies who will gather together and they will review people's cases and say, we're not gonna put you in a clinical trial because you don't have time for that, but we have this thing that might help you and we'll let you try it because we know that you're desperate to see something done. Because if you're desperate, you will, you will do anything. That's what desperation does is it makes us bold. It drives us out to find any possible solution. This woman is desperate to see her daughter healed. Where in your life are you desperate? Where in your life are you desperate? we will spend so many of our resources trying to avoid feeling desperate, won't we? That we can see desperation uh, as an enemy in our lives, as a thing to be avoided at all costs. Because desperation is an acknowledgement that there's pain in our lives. Desperation is an acknowledgement that there's something that we want and that we don't have the ability to get it for ourselves and that makes us desperate. 
the gap of those things, that, that's pain, right? That causes pain in our lives. And so we will avoid that desperation at all costs. But what if the desperation that we are trying to avoid is actually a doorway to the thing that we most desire and need in our lives? And what we see here is this desperation, actually, the woman's desperation drives her to Jesus, drives her to the one who can actually do something about the pain in her life, about the root of that pain in her life. That's true for us. That desperation is, is one of the things that can actually drive us toward Jesus. So rather than being a, something to avoid, desperation becomes a doorway uh, to intimacy with God. It becomes a doorway to, to our deepest healing. Temporally and eternally. And yet it's a thing that we fight. That we insist on so often our self-sufficiency, don't we? That no, our lives are, that we can manage them. If you are in a place where you can manage every detail of your life, it means, friends, you're, you're living too small. That you've deadened your heart, the desire in your heart, to something that can be controlled and managed by you. Not to mention that our self-sufficiency is an illusion. That we live in a world uh, that is far outside of our control. And when we insist on our self-sufficiency, we make ourselves big and we make God very small. This woman does not come to Jesus with her self-sufficiency, insisting on her rights or her abilities. She comes in desperation. And one of the things that can also sabotage that desperation is despair. That despair, uh, I want you to think of it as desperation, when hope has been subtracted. That when we're, when we're in despair, our need seems so great and God's ability or desire to address it seems so small. And it leaves us in despair. And in kind of this weird way, what it does is actually d despair makes us and our problems, it's another way of making ourselves really big and making God really small to say somehow my sin or my situation is so unique that God actually, uh, he couldn't love me in this place. That God's love has gotten really small and my sin has gotten really big or my circumstance has gotten really big. They're two sides of the same coin. And so the call uh, to desperation is a call into acknowledging the reality of our lives and to stepping through that, that doorway into something that Jesus has for us on the other side. The 12 steps, the 12 step program, uh, it says it like this in the first step. We admitted we were powerless that our lives had become unmanageable. We admitted we were powerless, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's what desperation sounds like. Where are you desperate?
And what we see Jesus do in this passage is he meets this woman in her desperation. We see that starting in verse 27. So she's begging him to cast his demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, and we, we have to pause there on he said to her. Because in engaging with this woman, Jesus is breaking every religious expectation of his day. In even speaking to her, in acknowledging her, he is breaking every expectation that the people, that the religious people around him had for him. So Jesus is talking to a woman who the text tells us is a Gentile. She's someone who's outside of the people of God. Someone who, in the kind of religious mind of the day, they would have become unclean because of their, Jesus would have become unclean because of his contact with her. In the, in the chapters all before this, it's all about this idea of clean, unclean. And so this unclean woman comes into the presence of Jesus, and Jesus doesn't push her away, he acknowledges her. And she's not just any Gentile, she's a Syrophoenician woman. And there's a lot of background here, but basically these people were long-standing historical enemies of the Jewish people. It's not only someone who's unclean, it's someone who was seen as an enemy. And she was a woman. And the way that the religious leaders thought in that day, and th this is so twisted, but they thought of women as, uh, as less than men. They were rabbis, who teachers, who would not even address women in public. so messed up and Jesus is pushing against all of these religious barriers by turning his attention to this woman and acknowledging her and speaking to her and here's this blows my mind this woman she knew about all of these things she knew that because of all of the religious expectation of the day even though she was not a Jewish woman she lived in an area that was right near Israel and she knew the rules but she also knew something about Jesus. She trusted something about Jesus. So she was bold in coming to him and he met her there. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And we push back from that. We say, that's so harsh. Is Jesus calling this woman a dog? There are all kinds of cultural reasons that that was one of the biggest insults you could give to somebody at the time. And we even know that's an insult, right? But the word uh, dog here is actually the word for puppies. It's a diminutive word for dog. And what that starts to do is change our perception of what Jesus is doing. That actually what's happening here is Jesus is telling a parable to this woman, a one-sentence parable. And he's reminding her about this overall mission that he's come to be a part of. That God, as a way of communicating himself to the world, chose a people. And he said, through this people, I'm going to help the world to know who I am. And those people got way off track. And Jesus came to them to restore them to, to the original mission that God had given them to restore them as people. But the hope was always, the hope was always at the beginning of the mission, like way back in the Old Testament, it was, the hope was always that the people that God had chosen would take that out into the world, that people would know God through his people. And that's the hope of Jesus' mission, that yes, it starts with the Jewish people, but it was always to be beyond that. And what he's reminding her is that my mission starts with God's people and it will go out into all of the world. 
And what he's doing is he's, he's pushing her just a little bit further because she has come to Jesus uh, because he's a miracle worker, that she wants to see something done on her daughter's behalf, that she's come to Jesus to get something out of him. And Jesus pushes her just a little bit further. And he says, no, no, I care about, I care about your daughter. And I also care about you. I care about her healing, and I care about your healing. And so he pushes her to confront her own need. He, he humbles her. And she responds to it. She answered him, yes, Lord. Oh, right. The, again, the boldness of this woman. That rather than letting uh, her lack of rights before Jesus drive her away, rather than becoming consumed by her shame, she stays in front of him. She's shameless in the best way. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table, even the puppies under the table, eat the children's crumbs. What she's saying to Jesus is, I belong in this house. There are children at the table, but I'm in this house too, and I'm a, I'm a puppy in your house. And even the puppies in this house get fed. That there is so, mu so much uh, abundance here that, that there is enough even for the puppies. And there's going to be a day that I get mine, and I need it today. I need it, and my daughter needs it. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Another way of translating that for this statement, you may go your way is, wow, what a statement. You realize this woman is amazing. Whenever the disciples hear a parable, they have zero idea what's going on, right? Jesus says, oh, and you've got this bread from a heavenly father. And like, what is the bread again? Can you give us some bread? And he's like, you're missing the point. And this woman, she puts herself into the parable that Jesus has told. She gets it. And she's saying, I know that this mission is, is for the people of Israel first, but it's also coming for me, and I need mine now. Do you hear that? She heard the invitation that Jesus gave her in the parable because Jesus in his parable acknowledges there are children, there are people to whom this promise was originally given, but there are other people who are gonna be brought into it. And they're not gonna be brought into it because they deserve it. They're not gonna be brought into it because of their rights. They're gonna be brought into it because I delight and desire to bring them into it. And she says yes to that. She says, that's me. And I'm here for it and I'm here for it now. And he says yes to that. He meets her in her desperation. This woman goes away and her daughter is healed, but she has been healed. She's been brought into a relationship with Jesus herself. She's confessed her faith in his character, his abounding, steadfast, never giving up love. And she's saying, I believe that that is also for me and for my daughter. But she's throwing herself on the loving character of Jesus. that even in his exhaustion, which is the last place that I'm interested in interacting with a needy person, 
but even in his exhaustion, he is searching for and pushing for the heart of this woman. That the, that the love, that the promises of Jesus, it's like, a, it's like a Thanksgiving table. You know, it's like the table that you set out, you spend all day making, knowing that there is no way anybody's gonna eat even close to the majority of this meal. Why do we prep our meals like that anyway? It's because there's something beautiful about seeing the abundance of what we've been given. But that is true about the love that our Jesus has for us. It is abundant, that it cannot be exhausted. Like, have you ever been to dinner with someone who tells you before you go that they're gonna pay for your meal? Anybody? A few people, okay, yes. Uh, Okay, so when you go to dinner with someone who says, I'm gonna pay for your meal, does that change the way you order your food? Yeah, right? That you're aware of the gift that this other person wants to, oh, okay, it does for me. Maybe it doesn't for you. That's okay, I guess. Uh, but you think, okay, if they're, gonna, if they're gonna pay for my food, then I gotta, I'm like now suddenly conscious of cost, even maybe in a way that I would not have been conscious of the cost beforehand. That I will order less than I would have ordered if I was going out by myself. And you kind of like wait for their signal, you know, when the waiter comes. Uh, do you want to start with anything? And you're like, do we want to start with anything? <laughs> they come back, here's the dessert menu. And you're like, are we going to? Or are we going to go to Ginny's afterwards and then I'll just buy my own? Like, what is the, what is the move here, right? And they're like, oh, let's just look down the menu. Well, the chicken, but the steak, but no, I'll go with the chicken, right? And this is just a window into my psychology, I guess. But what if you knew that the person that you were going to dinner with had an unlimited bank account? Like, what if you knew that, it, that you could order everything on the menu and it would not make a dent uh, in, what, in, in what they had? Would you order differently? Or when the person tells you, no, really, you can order, when they ask, do you want anything, and the, pers the person who's taking you out to dinner says, do you want anything? And you're like, do I want anything? And you're like, do you want anything? And you're like, I do want something, right? I will get the glazed carrots or whatever they are. that it, it, it changes the way that we order when we know the abundant love of the person who's taking us out to dinner. Yeah, I will also have a drink, right? That that is the love that this woman is, is, is leaning on in Jesus. That's the love that we are called to, a love that is abundant, that even the crumbs that fall from the table are a feast in our Father's house. And that if we resist desperation of our in our lives, if we deny it, if we avoid it, we miss out on the abundant feast that Jesus has prepared for us. And this is true for the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives, and it's true for us in, in a broader spiritual sense that on a spiritual level, um, what Scripture tells us is that we are dead in our sins. That's very desperate. That our spiritual state, when we are, when we are on our own, we're, we're dead, we are desperate, we are destined to be apart from God for forever. And in that place of our desperation, Jesus came and offered us, what did he offer us? He offered us himself. That that place of our, of our greatest desperation, of our greatest need, Jesus offered us not a, not a thing, not a method, not something that we could work to get back to him. He gave us his very self. 
that he died and was resurrected on our behalf. That he met us in our desperation with more love than we could ever ask or ever imagine. And if you hear that and you say, no, I'm good. I think I'll do it on my own. Oh, friend, do not let your self-sufficiency keep you away from the love of Jesus. Or maybe you hear that and you think, oh, that's fine. But that's, Jesus would never love me like that. Jesus could never love me like that. If, if you knew what I had done, you would know that offer is not for me. Do not let your despair keep you from Jesus. Yes, our situation is desperate. And that in that desperation is where Jesus delights to meet us. The next two steps in the 12-step program say it like this. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. We're not talking about turning ourselves over to to, uh, the care of God as we understand him. Because our understanding of God when left on our own is faulty. Our understanding of God when we are left to ourselves is that God's love is small that it runs out, that it has limits. And God, as we don't understand him, but that as is he is true, is that his love is abundant. So we turn ourselves over to the love of that God. That's the call for you this morning. Uh, if you're apart from Christ, is to come and to turn yourself over. And if you've been walking with Jesus for a short time, for a long time, not for a time and back for a time. Uh, This call to to desperation is also for you. That that the same Jesus who met this woman in her desperation desires and delights to meet you in your desperation. In the pain of it. And the promise is not that he will take the pain away. Sometimes I wish it was. But what he promises us is that in our desperation, he'll give us himself. One of my favorite verses is Romans eight thirty two, and it says, He do who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That the love that your Jesus has for you is abundant. It's generous. It knows no boundaries. And that he delights to meet you in your desperation, to shower that love on you. The reality is, is that if you are in Christ, he is showering that love on you, even if you can't see it. And acknowledging our desperation means opening up our eyes to ask Jesus, where are you meeting me in this? It opens us up to bringing our requests to him like a child. I've, I, people, people tell me this. You guys tell me this sometimes. Well, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to pray about that because I don't know if that's what Jesus wants for me. It, it doesn't matter. 
Jesus knows what you need and what you want. He will take care of giving you what is best for you. You don't have to figure that out before you're gonna ask him for it. Just ask. Like this woman, come with your desperation to him. He desires, he delights to meet you there. And acknowledging that desperation. uh, I've been doing that this week. It is hard for me. What it requires is that I would be uh, silent and quiet with God. And that I would actually allow myself to feel sad or to acknowledge the hurt in my life, the pain in my life. And what's true for a lot of us, this is true about us as we go and grow kind of throughout our lives, is that uh, the pain can become so great that we start to shut our hearts down. And the call here is is to full-hearted living that our hearts would start to wake up to the deep eternal desires that God has placed in us and wants to meet in us even if they will not be fully met until eternity. That being a desperate people is becoming a people who, uh, who know what it is to long for something. To long for something that's uh, greater than what we can do for ourselves. And trusting that our generous, abundant Jesus delights to meet us there. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we uh, we are so often God. We are we are desperate people, and Lord, uh, in in a moment of clarity, we confess that desperation to you. Lord, that whether or not we can feel it, whether or not we can understand it, whether or not we've got it all mapped out, Lord, we repent of our self-sufficiency, we repent of our despair, Jesus, and we come to you uh, with our desperation. Lord, I ask that as we worship now, as we acknowledge uh, who you are, as we confess who we are before you, uh, as we step into trusting who you are, would you be uh, enlivening our hearts? Lord, as we dare to look our our desperation in the face, would we see your face uh, delighting in us and meeting us there? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.